Что, ребята, как дела? Что, тиха украинская ночь, да, как говорил великий украинский писатель? Все ли у вас хорошо, ребятки? Нравятся ли вам наши байрактары? Broadcast, a series of conversations providing Western listeners with the background, context, and history to understand Russia's war with Ukraine. I'm Sam Bach, and with me as always are my co-hosts Mike Williamson and Andrew Denary. So, it's been quite a while since we had our last episode, apologies for the delay, but in the intervening months, many, many things have happened, and today we are going to catch you guys up on everything. Um, starting with today and working backwards, there's all sorts of stuff going on in the news that you might have heard of. You know, there's the annexation of the Ukrainian territories in which they were put to a um, referendum, quote-unquote, to the citizens there. There's been Russian conscription. And, you know, to round it all out, uh, Russia's been making nuclear threats. So how did we get here? What's going on today? And how did the war play out as it did? To kind of answer these questions in broad strokes, let's turn it to the experts themselves. Oh, that was very generous. Thank you, experts. Andrew's the one who actually technically gets paid to do this. I just, uh, I just, I pay with my sanity, but Andrew actually gets paid. But we're check. over here, but we are over here valuing your opinion, so therefore you're an expert. Well, thank you very much. Um, well, I, I guess I would round out your intro by highlighting, it, it, it's funny because like, I sometimes feel like I get lost in what the average person is seeing, or I, I don't have a clear beat on it because I'm so wrapped up in the minutia and all these mill bloggers and Russian telegram channels and whatever. Like, to me, yes, the conscription's a big deal. The nuclear threats, I mean, I think he's been making those since day one. But, I mean, just yesterday we had the Kerch Bridge get struck, which to if you were to ask a Ukrainian what the most significant point of the war may have been for them so far, besides the actual start of it, it might actually be the bridge getting hit. Um, and that's so not even... That then. So, like, let's tell people, like, what what was this bridge... Like, why was it so important that it blew up, and why didn't it get blown up before if it is, like, such an important bridge? Uh, so the Kerch Bridge, it probably carried with it a price tag. I think the estimates were 3 to $4 billion and uh, was constructed by the Russians to connect Russia mainland to Crimea after they occupied it uh, with the intent of more fully integrating it. It also serves as one of the main uh, logistical routes from Russia into the southern front in Ukraine. There's only two uh, main rail lines that head into the area that is currently seeing the most action, and uh, that bridge was a critical uh, component of that logistics train. Um, and so yesterday, we still don't totally... I, I have some ideas as to what caused it, but I'd kind of like to avoid that because I feel like in a week's time from now, it's all going to be different. Um, they're saying it may have been a truck bomb, but in short, like even American News has picked this up. Um, one significant part of the road bridge has collapsed into the sea, uh, the other one is likely structurally unsound, though they're going to try and impress their luck with that, I suspect. Um, and then the uh, the detonation, whatever it was, occurred right next to a fuel train on the railroad track. So right, there, there, are, there are two parts of the bridge. There's the road part, and then there's the railroad part. Uh, the railroad part's a bit elevated compa- compared to the road, um, but both are severely damaged to the point that I think now the only thing that's actually operable is a single uh, road lane. Um, and to zoom out, this is a big deal because the Kerch Bridge is the only path uh, to Russia proper from Crimea that doesn't go through Ukraine. Uh, So large parts of Ukraine, especially southern and eastern Ukraine, are now occupied by Russian forces. But before February 24th, the only way you could get from Russia to occupied Crimea without going through Ukraine was this Kerch Strait Bridge that was, like Mike said, really expensive and is a huge infrastructure project done personally by Putin. He opened it himself, drove the first truck across it. So this is really symbolic and Ukraine is bombing Putin's big pet project um, from his annexation of Crimea eight years ago. On his birthday, yeah. no less. So we are we can get more into this bridge later on, but I do kind of want to take a step back to discussing this bridge. Now, Andrew, something important that you mentioned is um, this was the only you know, previous to the war, this was the only way into and out of Crimea from Russia without going through Ukraine. And, you know, up until just very recently, Russia actually did have a land bridge to Ukraine as a result of their, uh, you know, expedition into Ukraine and the early success that they had there. However, the fact that they, you know, that that's going to be in question 
in the coming days, weeks, months, very soon, um, does kind of tell us where the war is at now. So let's take a step back and kind of discuss um, the war more broadly and how we got to this point. Uh, as an outsider, you know, without following it in the minutia that you guys have, the conflict kind of breaks down into three phases, and I want to dig into each of them briefly so we can give our listeners an update, especially when they may have stopped paying attention, um, you know, at some point, probably around uh, the second phase. So I see those three, and, you know, feel free to correct me, obviously, as the initial Russian blitz into Ukraine, uh, in which Russia took the majority of the territory that it took over the course of the entire war during this initial phase, then kind of the um, stalemate trench warfare that resulted as um, after that, you know, where it was inch by inch, really World War One level slog of, you know, artillery back and forth, not really that much advancement. And then all of a sudden that broke into a rapid Ukrainian counteroffensive in which now we're talking about the Russian land bridge in parts of Ukraine to Crimea um, potentially being having the Russians driven out. So um, kind of with that framework in mind, you know, let's start, in, um, start with the beginning and, um, you know, feel free to correct me if I got any of that wrong. Mike, do you want to start with the Blitz and I'll, I'll kind of jump in? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so I think your characterization is a pretty useful framework. Um, the the initial blitz into Ukraine on the part of the Russian army followed a pretty traditional Russian playbook of uh, paratroopers go and capture high-value targets, and then an armored spearhead attempts to punch through the lines and sort of arrest any opposition that may happen, and just ho- they're, they're hoping to like disintegrate the enemy's front lines from behind through capturing key critical infrastructure, um, demoralizing, and that was the whole idea, right? They wanted, they, they expected the Kiev government to fall um, and the locals to not put up the levels of resistance that they did. Obviously, that's not how it worked out. Within, like, I'd say the most harrowing part was the first 72 hours um, when we could see rapid progress being made. People probably saw the maps of the Russian, the, the territorial gains uh, as this, like, red wave that was moving forward, when in reality, it was more like red, like, spider webs moving through because they were they were totally roadbound. Um what they were attempting to do was well as I outlined was uh run in really quickly and capture stuff using um Spetsnaz units, that being their special forces, um backed up by heavy to light armor, the paratroopers moving in with light armor themselves, having a few helicopters for cover. But other than that, like it failed famously because they completely outran their own air defense bubble. They completely outran their own supply chain, which is almost entirely dependent on rail infrastructure, which they just did not control because this was a whole new country. Um, and so that, so, so uh, go ahead. To, to, to put this more in layman's terms, since it's a little technical language, you're saying that the tip of the Russian sphere, spear advanced too far forward to be able to be supported by all the other parts of the army that would traditionally support an expeditionary force, right? Uh well, correct. So this wasn't, or or it may have been sufficient for an expeditionary force, but the Russians miscalculated in thinking that they could get away with just using an expeditionary force and not a full combined arms army. So, so this is actually where I want to get Andrew in, because I think a key element of the Blitz and its failure um, is a, the question of Ukrainian morale and the fact that I think everyone was expecting this to go totally different from how it did. And the, the, the quote unquote country of Ukraine from Russia's perspective would totally collapse inwards on itself. That obviously didn't happen. So, you know, Andrew, can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's one of the things that everyone had a misconception about going into this. Yeah, first off, Mike's right that uh, the Russians advanced really, really quickly and actually got really close to Kiev. Uh, Michael and I did Peace Corps training in Irpin, which was famously kind of the last holdout um, around kind of the, the northwest of Kiev. that if that had line had fallen, the Russians would have had a more clear line to Kiev. So we actually came really close to the Russians taking Kiev or at least threatening the city itself. Now, you're absolutely right that Ukrainian resolve, morale, and skill were much higher than Russians thought. Um, like Mike said, the, the audacity to drive basically a column of trucks toward Kiev and expect and outrun your own air cover and expect that that would work is a symptom of Russians thinking that Ukrainians would welcome these forces. And so they didn't think they needed this air cover. And when that happened, when they were wrong, uh, Ukrainian uh, drones and, and air cover did kind of absolutely yeeted these Russian trucks. <laughs> I was going to say, we were gifted the meme that is now the Bayraktar. 
Yeah, exactly. By Rockstar's other by kind Russian of, incompetence. Yeah, kind of hand hands uh, weapons. So yeah, Russians completely outran their coverage and miscalculated, and that's kind of why we saw these really quick advances. But then, kind of Ukraine slowly push the Russians back. And even beyond, actually, like in one little. I think it's important to kind of highlight the tactical character of what was happening so people can really understand why things unfolded the way that they did and why the second phase of the war looked so much more like a Russian victory than this opening, these opening Akalsian days of, of uh, February and March. Um, so apart from all like the Bayraktar drone strikes that we saw, and by the way, the, the Bayraktar has no business being a frontline strike unit what is in contested. It is a I mean it, it's it's a it's a relatively large unmanned drone, as all drones are, um, that can be mounted with either like optics or, you know, air to ground missiles, bombs, whatever you want to strap on the thing, can be piloted remotely, but it doesn't go very fast. It doesn't really have any defensibility or survivability in a modern environment. If there's any sort of air defense um the Bayraktar is not so small that it can easily evade those air defenses. And so the fact that we have so much uh, footage of these drones operating successfully uh, is a very clear indication that the Russians just did not come ready to party in this part of Ukraine. But it's also worth noting that the uh, as 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 much as the Bayraktar is held up as being this uh, like quintessential Ukrainian weapon, it really doesn't account for that much of the damage done to the Russians. The majority of the damage was done to, uh, I'd say, like, light squads, light infantry squads with their javelins and uh, other sort of, like, anti-weapon, anti-excuse me, anti-armor, anti-tank weapons. Uh, and so, like, when you saw the Russians punch through, they attempted to keep those lines open for a very long time. And I'm, I, I do want to, like, wrap up this one phase of the war briefly because mm-hmm. I know we're talking a lot about it. But um, they attempted to maintain these supply lines without actually having any control over the surrounding countryside. And so you have these Ukrainian soft units, soft being special operations forces, um, just ambushing them freely for like hundreds of kilometers trying to drive from, you know, Belgorod into Sumy or from Sumy into Chernihiv and into Kiev. I know people don't quite know their Ukrainian geography, um, but uh, those are not very close cities. That's a lot of like rough terrain to have to go through to get to important points. <clears throat> so that's that's a excellent um, summation kind of of the initial character. But so, you know, one thing that's in my mind that is a little bit in conflict is you're talking about the ultimate weakness of the Russian tip of the spear and how they were, you know, really kind of unable to capitalize on the very deep territorial incursions they made. But at the same time, almost all of the territory taken by Russia occurred very early on in the war. Um, you know, so there's a famous phrase, um, trading space for time, sure, but like, how do you kind of square that circle of both the, the yeah, what I said, the, the fact that the expeditionary force sort of failed, but also that's when Russia made their territorial gains. So Russia made their territorial gains largely in the south and somewhat in the east, the biggest gains and the quickest gains being in the south in Kherson Oblast, which have still been holding, and this kind of land-ish bridge uh, coming north from Crimea, east to Russia proper, hitting on the way there the, the previously occupied Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. So that's the territory that Russia has been able to hold and that Russia was able to kind of uh, administer or at least take control of quickly. Uh, there were some incursions in the east. Mike knows more about uh, kind of the Kharkiv side of this in, in the northeast of Ukraine, where they the Russians kind of used heavy artillery to shell the city, but the defenses around the city never actually fell. We weren't talking about Russians in the streets of Kharkiv. The only capture that Russia, or the only city, I should say, that Russia, major city, um, two cities that Russia's been able to capture are Kherson and Mariupol after a long, long slog around the, the Azov stall base, which I'm sure we can, we can, or um, nuclear power or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> the nuclear power plant. I, I can actually, I can actually um, go a little bit more in depth on this. So the reason that the Russian advance in the South was so much more successful was due to a couple reasons. One was the terrain. The terrain greatly favored. It, it, it's, it's much more wide and open, very similar to what we have in Donbass. Like the North of Ukraine is a bit more densely wooded. And that enabled Ukrainian ambushes to a degree that they weren't really possible out in the open fields of Kherson, where they could easily be spotted. Um, so the character of this war across every single phase of it so far, um, you actually like your analogy of World War One was a pretty apt one because uh, we're at a point with technology now where sticking your head out and getting spotted can mean very, very quick death. 
uh, because drones are so om omnipresent and artillery is the weapon of the day and can be sighted much more accurately than it ever has in the past, at least uh, without like advanced laser guidance or whatever. Like the Americans have much more, much more uh, high tech ways of guiding their munitions, whereas the Russians are basically using like Cold War era pieces still. But you can still cite that in if you have a beat on where your shells are landing exactly. You have a video feed telling you what's happening. So. Um, Basically, the South was just not very conducive to defensive operations. The Ukrainians did not have as much of a presence in the area, and Kherson was initially deemed to be indefensible terrain. So the Ukrainians actually withdrew from Kherson pretty rapidly and held at Mykolaiv, um, which actually did succeed. Um, so, the, so the Russian advance did get bogged down. The other thing that's worth pointing out is that the Russians had access to a rail network in the South that they didn't have access to in the North. So it was much more easy to keep that spearhead supplied and maintained. Uh, than it was around like Chernihiv, Sumy, um, and even with Kharkiv, it's like they, they 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 attempted a very similar playbook with Kharkiv as they did with Kiev. Like the, the Russians actually made it into the very technically speaking, they made it into the center of Kharkiv. It's just that it was like a couple uh, special forces units driving lightly armored trucks, and they got swamped and destroyed almost immediately. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, I, no, I wanted to I wanted to get Andrew in there. There's one thing I just wanted to um, kind of point out to our listeners, which is. All of the territorial gains that we're talking about that Russia has made during the course of this war, if you look on a map, they are basically all touching Russia or Belarus. And why is it important to point that out? It's not the fact that all of that territory was so close. Like, you know, in war, you can sort of think of like as you extend further and further, you become weaker and weaker. Like if you look at the U.S.'s um you know, expeditionaries, expeditions um, across the world, we are able to project force around the entire globe. There is not anywhere in this in the entire globe that we cannot get to and initiate some real serious rough and tough conflict whereas Russia is failing to capture territory right at its doorstep and it just kind of points to um you know prior to this conflict everyone really saw Russia as you know one of the like probably the second best military in the world and the fact that it's unable to, you know to put the Ukrainian um resistance in you know drive and everything which is spectacular to the side for one second the expectation was that a military of this capacity would be able to um, control area so close to it much easier. And the fact that that hasn't happened is, um, it's remarkable from my perspective. Um, but Andrew, sorry, I wanted to get you in there. Yeah. One thing that aside from the military, uh, like kind of hard conflict bit that I think is important when we talk about how did Ukraine survive the blitz to basically driving Russia to a stalemate kind of in the, the second phase of the war, if we want to call it that is just how flawless, uh, president Zelensky's political uh, campaign in the international sphere has been. I mean, the dude really made no mistakes on the international scene when, you know, months ago he was really failing to tamp down corruption and Western leaders weren't really high on this guy. He was absolutely flawless, staying in Kyiv, the, doing the videos that he made. His video and digital team is flawless in terms of engaging Westerners and getting people interested and maintaining their interest and support, you know, to even today, something like 75% of Americans support uh, greater U.S. aid to Ukraine. And that's after seven months of war in the United States, which uh, is not a country with a long kind of long day-to-day uh, -day current events memory. So the public diplomacy and the leader-to-leader the -leader international diplomacy has been flawless from Kyiv in large part. Um, in getting military support, budgetary support, and all these kinds of humanitarian aid even um, to keep Ukraine possible, keep it possible for Ukraine to keep fighting and to keep Western kind of support at official levels and on the public level. Exactly. Yeah, it's not just, um, he's not just been successful in getting people to change their Twitter bios, tw Twitter bios to hashtag I stand with exactly. Ukraine, you know, getting HIMARS and, uh, you know, uh, intelligence support and everything. So no, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. Um, yeah, no, um, I think it's about time we move on to the second phase. Um, there was one, there's one phrase actually um, regarding the Blitz I just wanted, I touched on before and I just wanted to spell it out for our listeners because I think it is important. It's the concept of trading space for time, which is exactly what it sounds like. And I think um, we didn't really touch on it, but does explain a lot of the territorial concessions insofar as um, Ukraine needed that time, which 
it got for by giving up parts of the land that it did you know see as indefensible um, to regroup and ultimately mount its defense. Um, and if you guys have anything to say about that, you can. Otherwise, we can uh, move on. It's it it occurred because unlike what we have right now, the Russians actually outnumbered the Ukrainians in the very beginning and have since been attrited to the point that Ukraine actually has a manpower advantage, at least in terms of trained manpower. That may be shifting as of the. Uh, notice of the conscription, although I have serious doubts as to whether they can supply and train those troops to be combat effective at all. We'll see how that pans out. Um, So Ukraine entered into this conflict at a significant material disadvantage, a slight manpower disadvantage, uh, but they were fighting on the defensive. Um, They were also fighting against an enemy that had them surrounded and outnumbered on three different sides. So yes, I think a little bit of territorial concession was definitely uh, unavoidable. Um, they also were fighting with what is now, they're, they're fighting with what was then a very different army than what they have now. Um, and I will segue, let's, I'll, I'll segue this into the second phase of the war here. So what, so, cause this is actually a really good point to do it. Um, because the war turned into an artillery war very quickly. So Russia saw that its blitz failed, um, and pulled out almost, and pulled out entirely out of the north of the country. Like it got to the point where the advanced units were beginning to get surrounded. Their supply lines were beginning to get cut. And so they decided to, uh, Retreat, and they actually did so fairly orderly. Like it, it, they left behind a lot of equipment, but several units actually made it out pretty well intact. And they decided to take two or three weeks to regroup and announce the new political objective of Kiev was a feint, and we're going to take all of Donbass instead. And we also recognize the full territorial claims of Luhansk and Donetsk, um, the so-called People's Republics there. And so what they ended up doing was concentrated all of their mass in those areas, um, and then taking a playbook straight from World War I slash World War II, really hasn't changed with the Russians, and just moon cratering, essentially, all the landscape ahead of their advancing infantry and armor. Um, now, through, the, through, through doing so, they invited a lot of counter-battery fire from the Ukrainians. And this was, by the way, this was occurring over like several hundred kilometers of front at once, um, most notably around Severodonetsk and... Uh, and Lysychansk, that being the last major urban center that was in uh, the Donetsk, excuse me, the Luhansk, I believe, Andrew, Luhansk Oblast, if I remember correctly. Donetsk, Donetsk. That's, that's okay, fair enough. Severodonetsk, if that would make sense. Um, but regardless, um, they uh, they captured some crucial junctures like around Izium, which <laughs> the Russians fought for for like, what, six weeks, seven weeks, and then lost it in a day later on in the war, which is really interesting. Um, uh, but I'd say like... But Tom, Go ahead. Yeah, so so to take to take a step back, this is kind of explaining a little bit on the tactical level, like what actually the character of the war ended up shaping into being. But okay, so Russia was able to make these territorial advances early on, and um, you know the Ukrainian resistance was harder than anyone expected. So they pulled back and then began this artillery artillery fire. But so let's, you know, I think this is right about when the U.S. attention began to wane for the war because. Again, during during this time, not much happened. So, how did we get to the point where we go from this, you know, huge, you know, blitz, um, Russians, you know, um, paratrooping into Ukrainian airfields, all that sort of stuff, to there is a prolonged period where there's really no territorial exchanges, and it is kind of just this artillery fire. Like, I, I know in a sense it's self-evident for people who know about what that entails, but you know, I'll throw jump ball for both of you guys, but explain kind of why it ended up shaping up like that. Well, first of all, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock, and that's what initiated <laughs> the first change, the first change yeah, of pace. As, as, a, as a little aside to our listeners, when we first started doing this episode, that was kind of what we're actually going to um, lean into with, like, you may have stopped paying attention right around the Oscars 2021. <laughs> or, or 2022, excuse me, oh my God. And, and it, does, it actually, like, does neatly coincide with the start of the second phase. Um, so, okay, so the reason everything changed was that basically Russia stopped acting quite as stupidly as they were and pulled back and forced the Ukrainians to fight them on a much narrower front, um, more one-to-one than they had before, where they could really leverage their numerical advantage more. Um, so, so the big weakness that the Russians started to encounter here is that they don't have a whole lot of trained infantry to escort their armor divisions. So like maneuver warfare in the style that the Americans like to conduct doesn't really exist in the Russian playbook right now, at least not very effectively. Maneuver uh, warfare being? Maneuver warfare being like actually like driving and outflanking and getting around your opponent using tanks and APCs and Humvees, not that they have Humvees, but that sort of thing, right? Combi- like true combined arms warfare. That was replaced with the slow rolling artillery barrages in the east, and then they would storm positions after they felt like the Ukrainians had been significantly degraded. Um, 
Uh, and the thing is, at, at this point, like, there, there are two, there are three things that the Russian military does very well. One is logistics within its own territory, relying on its rail network. Two is artillery, and three is air defense. Um, and so in this phase of the war, they were able to leverage all three of those things. Uh, and at one point, at least according to Zelensky's own words, they, like the number of artillery pieces the Russians had well, outnumbered what the Ukrainians had about 10 to 1, and the Russians were firing about, oh, at this point, I, I forget. It was like many, many, many times, like 10 times the artillery shells per day as the Ukrainians were able to fire back. And so there was just no... There was just no way for the Ukrainians to actually resist that being so close to Russian supply lines. So this is good, but I want to get Andrew in for a minute because you've been monologuing. Uh, well, so so <laughs> one of the things that we talk about keeping Western attention uh, on this war when right not a whole lot was going on, Russia was inching forward in the east, inching forward a little bit in the south, getting bogged down around Mykolaiv. Um, Russian war crimes and the, the revealing them in places like Bucha and Mariupol kept Western eyes on, on the war in Ukraine. So, right, we saw all the awful executions, rapes, mass graves in Bucha, people being starved out in Mariupol, no water, no electricity, uh, families in Azovstal with the defenders there basically living in an underground tunnel network for weeks, uh, you know, holding out against Russian troops. These are kind of the stories that kept people engaged while basically big guns were shooting at each other for six weeks. So, and and on the, the big artillery shooting at each other, we did come really close to, uh, because Michael notes that uh, Ukraine was outnumbered in artillery fire, about 10, maybe 20 to 1 at times in the east. And so there were legitimate fears in Kiev and in D.C. that once the kind of first Severodonetsk salient, if that fell, that Russians would have a more clear line on Kiev. And the fact that Russians didn't break that line is a testament to Ukraine's strategic uh, capabilities, kind of the way they set up. And it really is a Russian failure in the East that they could only inch along kilometer by kilometer over many weeks and took Severodonetsk, a city of 80,000 people. And that's kind of all they have to show or had to show for their Eastern kind of advance there. So one item in kind of the popular mythos understanding of Russia is this idea that a long, slow slog favors them. They are the meat grinder. They can throw people into a conflict, you know, at nauseum in order to eventually persevere. Obviously, the siege of Stalingrad um, looms large in the in the global um, popular consciousness of Russia. And I think a lot of expectations going into particularly this phase of the conflict, okay, fine, they don't have the special forces that maybe someone like the United States has, understandable, but this is really the Russian bread and butter. Um Help us understand why that fell apart, because I think a lot of people are expecting, okay, fine, the first phase didn't work, but this, you know, for sure, the Russians got the Ukrainians here. Like, more on, like, kind of, Mike, I'll throw this to you. Why did this start to fall apart like that? I think, so there are a couple different reasons why this ended up happening. Uh, famously, I think number one is that they failed to achieve air superiority. Um, number two is that they never they didn't formally declare war and so a lot of soldiers were serving on these three-month contracts in which they saw what's a what's a mess that they were in many of them declined to renew those contracts and left um and so you had tons of videos of these like russian tanks and russian btrs moving forward with no infantry support which is completely BTR. anathema BTR, BMPs, sorry, did I, what did I say? What, no, what, what, BTR, what, no, what are those things? Oh, basically, basically they're armored infantry fighting vehicles with like 30 millimeter cannons on top and sometimes some other razzle dazzles, but, um, those usually, those usually actually carry men inside of them. So maybe it's a bit misleading, but I've seen lots of cases of these, of these, uh, vehicles getting ambushed when they should have been flanked or covered by infantry, which would be standard, like Western military doctrine. Um, they also threw a lot of men into the meat grinder that was Severodonetsk. So the Russians did achieve a few notable victories during this phase, one being the ultimate submission of Mariupol because it had been completely surrounded and cut off for some, from, for, by, excuse me, cut off from supply lines for about five or six weeks. 
Um, and, and then Sever- Mariupol um, was the steelworks uh, city that you might have heard about, where there was the very, very, very long slow siege. Um, you know, with the dwindling survivors, dwindling food supplies, all that sort of stuff. Continue. Thank Just you. Just wanted to clarify. Thank you. Yeah, and then also um, in the east there was. Izium, which became a very important like logistics hub that the Russians lost in a day as soon as they got flanked later on in the war. Uh, and then Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, which was a like combined metropolitan area of about 150, maybe 200,000 people. Um, and so that was taken as well after a lot of grinding fighting. Um, the Russians actually captured 90% of the city, and then the Ukrainians unleashed hell from the high ground and nearly pushed them back out again. And then the Russians had to redo all their progress um, but at the end of the day, like that phase of the war just favored the Russians so much because so much of the Western military aid hadn't actually fully materialized in Ukraine. One thing that I don't think, uh, gets highlighted enough is that the Ukrainians actually ran through the entire pre-war stock of their artillery ammunitions within, I think the first two months of the war, maybe even less. Like they're currently now almost exclusively using the one five, five, like standard NATO round because all of, uh, NATO is supplying them with ammunition and artillery. Um, so they really were in, I think, their weakest supply and strategic position at this point. Yeah. So you mentioned supplies, and I think it's actually a good time to kick it back to Andrew because, you know, Andrew, you were discussing the political dimension and the support that um, Zelensky was able to conjure up out of the West. Um, you know, I was wondering kind of if you could take the conversation a little bit about that. And like, you know, obviously this middle phase slogged on for a lot. So kind of what was being done outside of Ukraine to help them out during that time? I cannot tell you how difficult it was to convince uh, folks in the White House to supply the amount of aid that Ukraine needed to not only continue the war, but to to turn things around the way we've seen this. This was months and months of talking to to folks in the White House and and trying to really be like, guys, Ukraine can win here and it's in the U.S. interest to do this. So it's been very, very difficult, both civil society, folks in Ukraine and folks in Europe, uh, we talk about the Baltics, have also been kind of Ukraine's friends in lobbying Western governments to get more weapons, more supplies to Ukraine. So in this middle bit was was really tough. And I think uh, Zelensky did a really good job. And uh, Zeluzhny, who's the kind of um, top general in the Ukrainian army, sending kind of a list of things that Ukraine needed and getting that, circulating that, socializing that among governments and then getting those sent to the front line. And so Ukraine was able to get longer range fires, more artillery, and kind of these simple things needed to, uh, they're not sophisticated weapons, but they help kind of slow down Russian artillery. The other thing that I want to talk about that he's in the news now, uh, Elon Musk provided Starlinks to the front line and in Ukraine, which basically is like portable Wi-Fi. You don't need, it's like satellite portable Wi-Fi. You don't need kind of normal um, cell connection and for drones, which Ukraine used both for recon and for defense to kind of find Russian artillery and counterfire quickly and then kind of move out of the way because uh, Russian artillery would come after uh, drones were spotted. That was really key to basically keeping those units alive and functioning and keeping Ukrainian defenses up, particularly in the East. Just um, ap- kind of apropos of nothing, one not totally relevant to kind of the structure of this episode, but one thing I did want to touch on when you mentioned Starlink is to bring it back a little bit earlier to the war, like in terms of um, Russia's ill-preparedness. Like there were stories about Russian soldiers and generals using their personal cell phone on Ukrainian cell networks. Crazy. And like that was, a, yeah, stuff, stuff like that. So like the logistics game in terms of this is really important. Like the um, the fact that generals were calling people on their personal cell phones allowed like um, I mean, you might have heard about like the absolute bloodbath of high Russian command um, from this war, and that like played a part in it, the fact that Ukraine was able to pinpoint where these folks were and um, remove them from this mortal coil. Yeah, there, I mean, there, there's an entire another back narrative that we do not have capacity to get into right now about Russian corruption in the military and how that hollowed out so much of what should have been going to them. Uh, and yeah, you're exactly right. Like encrypted comms is one of the Achilles heels of the Russians currently, because you're right. Like we've got little five star generals speaking on Kyivstar and then getting geolocated <laughs> and uh, yeah, sent sent to the, the happy road out of this life. But um, I think that pretty much I do think that that summarizes the second phase pretty accurately. It was artillery slog. This is what the Russians specialize in naturally. They actually made some gains. But to put this into perspective, the amount of territory that they gained 
um, was like, I be, I think it was like probably less than 2% of Ukraine proper, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was a infinitesimally small point of territory. Sam's grimacing right now. No, with it, I don't, like, I, I've looked at maps, like, you, you know, I understand control is different than like what's drawn on a map, but like the extent of quote unquote Russian area in Ukraine looks a lot bigger than 2%. Oh, I, I mean, okay, allow, gains, me, allow me to gains, clarify. Gains in the okay. second, in the second phase. Within the second oh, in phase. The second phase. Like okay, within okay. the phase in which uh, like they were, they were like really winning because in the first phase, it's more like the Ukrainians realized, okay, we don't have a tenable defense in this area. We need to pull back. It wasn't like they're actually getting their armed forces destroyed. Um, to the extent that they like in the in the second phase, what's really what's really crazy? It's not just like it, it's not that the Ukrainians were losing territory. It's that there were there's a tremendous amount of men and material loss on both sides at that time. Um, so like I, I guess like people tend to overemphasize the amount. Like I, I I'm guilty of this as of just now, but uh, people do tend to over overemphasize the relatively small change of hands of territory, but the relatively large loss in men and material is actually really important because you can easily have a point where like. Uh, an army just breaks at the front line and then just continues to collapse from there like the French did in World War II and almost did in World War One as well. Um, this and is something they can't... Might, and it looks like it might happen. looks like it might be happening right now, potentially, yeah. too. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. Which is a great so, time to go ahead. Yeah, so, so with that, Andrew, if you had, have any final thoughts on the second phase, otherwise... I'm, okay, perfect. I'm going to lead us in. Um, so <clears throat> the third phase, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, is characterized by not a blitzkrieg, but certainly a rapid reversal of fortunes um, from the Ukrainians and their ability to all of a sudden out of nowhere um, take back a lot of the territory that was controlled by Russia. Um, so kind of two questions immediately jump into my mind, which is one, um, you know, inertia is a thing both in physics and in war and a battlefield at rest seems to me like it would stay at rest. So um, how did this kind of so rapidly all of a sudden um, shift. And then secondly, it, we can let's dig into that one first, but another question, um, a little bit more um, specific, which is prior to this counteroffensive, Ukraine was telegraphing as much and they were still able to make the um, gains that they did. You know, they, they were saying like, oh, we're going to be launching a counteroffensive like roughly on this date. Um, I remember talking with you guys about that and somehow they were still successful in that, which is mind-boggling to be to project your intent and then also succeed in it in um, conflict. But let's let's head with the top first. How how did we suddenly dislodge this stalemate? Andrew, I think it would actually be good for you to lead with the political implications of all that messaging because I think that was really the driving force behind the the Harrison counteroffensive. Even though I think what Sam is hinting at is the okay. Kharkiv counteroffensive. So go ahead. Yeah. So, like we mentioned a few times in this episode, Zelensky has been lobbying Western governments really, really hard for kind of more, better weapons, especially that once, uh, like Sam said, once the conflict kind of froze a little bit or at least slowed down kind of to inertia, you know, we started talking about counterattacks and even a counteroffensive. And to this point, you know, Western governments saw that Ukraine can defend itself, can win, they are capable, and this made it a much easier argument to send things like HIMARS, like longer range fires, kind of the air defenses that Ukraine needs to uh, push forward its forces, albeit very slowly in some places, especially in Kherson. But HIMARS in particular, like it, to my mind, it's hard to underestimate just how important these are, especially in the South, attacking uh, Russian logistics, uh, supply dumps, ammunition holds to basically make it much harder and less tenable for Russians to kind of hold the positions that they had done. And that kind of set the scene. So just everyone's, yeah, just, just, just everyone's clear. Um, so what, what is a HIMAR? I know this is yeah. now in the popular High mobility, yeah, um, yeah. what is it? Artillery or multiple rocket? It's what a big it? effing uh, rocket launcher on wheels. Okay, yeah. There you go. That's a good explanation. It uses, it uses uh, <laughs> like GPS guided rockets, which really is just like missiles with extra steps, um, to reach out and hit targets like over seventy kilometers away, which gave Ukraine a crucial asymmetric advantage in the artillery war that it did not have previously. And they're super, super precise. So you can line something up, like like American hit. precise, um, not Russian precise, not like Russian hitting a shopping mall with yes. cruise missiles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which just, and I'll just jump in one thing, which is very important when, um, you know, you are being supplied with the intelligence needed to make those precision strikes. 100%. Is um, I understand is it's going on. like American intelligence and Western grade weaponry has enabled Ukraine to make some really surprising plays in this war. 
Um, interestingly, I, 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 one one American official, I think, like kind of said tongue-in-cheek, if not outright, that it was American intelligence that was resulting in so many dead Russian generals all of a sudden. I don't know. They were also talking on Star as we spoke before. So who knows? We, we, we're probably not going to know until documents get unsealed dec- decades from now. Um, but there was also the sinking of the literal Russian flagship in the Black Sea, the Moskva, um, that we think may have had a lot to do with Americans pointing out, like, hey, here's where it is, and you do whatever you feel like doing. It's out of my hands now, bro. Um Hit with U.S. and British supplied uh, Neptune missiles, of, maybe shore to shore to yeah Neptune shore to, ne- to Neptune missiles, missiles yeah. and then Turkish supplied by Raktars like flew the uh, the cover to disorient the air defense or just like oversaturate it. The Moskva is actually like I'm not going to nerd out too hard on this because it's beyond the scope of this episode because it actually touches on Russian corruption, but it does highlight some se- like if you're wondering why the Second Army in the war excuse me, second army in the world faltered so badly. The Moskva is such a good example because at the time that it was that it uh, was launched out on its first campaign into Ukraine, we have literal Russian records that detail out the fact that over like, like maybe one-fifth of the fire extinguishers on board were actually functioning. Most of the safety equipment was being kept behind lock and key because it kept getting pilfered by the crew. Uh, the ship itself was understaffed. Like, many of the air defenses on the ship were not operable at the time that it left. The whole thing was a paper tiger. Um... And the same could be said for a lot of Russia's forces. Like it's 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 fundamental, it's fundamental army group. Something called the Battalion Tactical Group, the BTG, is ideally, under perfect circumstances, supposed to be composed of about a thousand infantry, ten tanks, you know, and, and then an array of trucks and uh, like other armored vehicles in support. And the way this worked out in practice is most of these these uh, BTGs were shipping out not even half strength with like less than 500 people because so many Russian officers had falsified reports and pocketed the spare change that was meant to be used to supply these troops back before the war started. So they were all like panicking when they were told to go into Belarus to prepare for this war um, because they maybe only had 700 or 500 instead of a thousand people again, because they had like either sold off equipment or pocketed the the funds uh, because the whole system just ran on corruption. But I just wanted to make that point real clear. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, want to just make one quick point real quick the, the, the Moscow is actually worse than a paper tiger because its sinking was an enormous morale blow to the russians at this point as well like you, you have what is supposed to be a you know battleship to you know think think about it like if the uss gerald ford was sunk or something like that that would be top page of every single newspaper in the country enormous news um but the difference is we're actually you know projecting force with that all around the, the world and it is functional but the fact that um you know, such a literal flagship was sunk so easily. It was literally, so, uh, it was literally the, yeah, the Snake can't, can't Island ship. The Russian yeah. psyche. Um, Andrew, and to get back to the to the counteroffensive, right? Like Ukraine had been telegraphing this Kherson counteroffensive, which is where we thought that they could push back forces at least to the to the Dnipro River, and we'd seen some gains over the course of of many weeks and, and a few months, and then maybe a month ago, or a few weeks ago, Ukraine goes on this run in Kharkiv in Kharkiv Oblast, where they basically overrun Russian forces there and force them back. Just outline where, where is Kharkiv in relation to Kherson. So Kherson, think Kherson, Black Sea, southeast Ukraine, uh, west of Crimea. And then you go hundreds of miles north to the Russian border. You have Kharkiv Oblast north of the occupied Donetsk and Luhansk regions. And so, yeah, so... Ukrainians basically break through Russian lines and go on this run and take tens of miles of territory in only a few days. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the this phase of the war is really characterized by what Andrew was saying, which is the rapid advance of the Ukrainians. Um, like at this point, I mean, I've heard anecdotes that there it's like literally just as far as people can walk in a day is how much territory is being taken, like limited by themselves, not by the Russian um, defense, you know, and this is obviously a rapid, rapidly evolving phase of the conflict. It only really initiated, what, like three weeks ago or something uh, at the time of recording. Um, so, you know, I think this actually nicely transitions us into looking even further ahead into the future um, and kind of what's coming down the pike, what else is happening today, and all um, all sorts of that other good stuff, unless either of you guys have any closing thoughts um, on this phase of the war. There are a few details that I might add. I know I've added in a lot already, but... Um, 
what's interesting about this phase of the war is it again highlights the central theme that the Russians have just been lacking in motivated and trained manpower to achieve their objectives. Um, the whole reason that there was a breakthrough in Kharkiv was because the Ukrainians, first of all, have been telegraphing the counteroffensive in Kherson for a long time, which for reference is on the complete opposite end of the front line, like as far geographically possible within like the actual combat zone as you could possibly get from Kharkiv. Um, and the Russians pulled about 60% of their available combat power into that region, thus creating an opening in Kharkiv. Um, and the Ukrainians found out that, you know, these crucial supply hubs were basically being guarded by reserve soldiers, uh, Donetsk People's Republic soldiers, people who were like out, like armed with World War II era equipment, essentially, uh, and very thinly manned with no reserves left to plug the gap. And so they, they actually did a more American style campaign where air power advanced, tanks punched through. We've got that famous video of knucking Futz Yuri with his uh, like M2 Browning 50 caliber machine gun on top of a Humvee. He runs out of ammo, screams for ammo, and the Ukrainian guy literally hands him a rocket launcher because he ran out of machine gun ammo. <laughs> and so he's like lighting up these buildings with the rocket launchers. And sorry, I mean, I thought that was a funny video and you should... <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, that's that's good. Um, yeah. So, any let's any go. any let's last go. points? Because I actually think that's a good trans. Like, the th- that's actually a good transition into um, Russian conscription because we're talking about Russian manpower so much. Um, this obviously has enormous political implications at home. Um, insofar as up until this point in the war, sure, Russians had to deal with Western sanctions and no longer could buy official McDonald's and, you know, Nike shoes, Adidas track pants. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed that didn't cause riots at home. But, you know, <laughs> um, you know, but in, in some fundamental sense, the Russian people were shielded from the consequences of their government's actions um, insofar as invading Ukraine. However, with Putin's call for a partial mobilization, this kind of flipped the dynamic, yeah, partial mobilization in air quotes for the... Um, for everyone who can't see that, um, <laughs> this kind of flipped the dynamic on its head where all of a sudden ordinary Russian citizens were at risk of being called to the front. And um, in economics, there's a really great term called revealed preference. It's not what you say, it's what you do. And the fact that, you know, all these very gung-ho, you know, pro, quote-unquote, patriotic um, folks itching for bloodshed were all of a sudden catching buses to get the get out of Dodge. Um, you know, I was wondering, um, Andrew, I think this is a really good topic for you, actually, if you'd able be able to just kind of discuss conscription. Generally. Sure. So Putin for many months had avoided mass mobilization, conscription, exactly for the reasons you said, because this is, Russia had never declared war on Ukraine. They called it a special military operation. And as that suggests, uh, this wouldn't be, you know, Putin doesn't want this to be a full out war on Ukraine, especially as Russia's been failing. Uh, it would look bad for him at home, even though he controls basically every kind of information lever at home. But because Russia was failing so badly, they had to call up, uh, you know, estimates range from 300,000 to even over a million uh, guys to the front. And they're basically being sent in like two weeks, no training. Some are sent directly from places like in the Russian Far East almost directly to the front line in Ukraine with like a gun, like a musket, not a musket, but like, come on. Um, and so no people, I think Russians do understand that uh, a lot of their countrymen are dying in Ukraine. And we've seen hundreds of thousands of people flee Russia in, in the North, try to get to the Baltics in the South, try to get to Georgia or Armenia. And even in the East, try to get to places like, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Mongolia, just because people don't want to fight in this war. And we can talk a little bit at length if, if we have time about what this says about Russian support for the war. But it does indicate that Russians understand that this war is um, a bit of a mess and they don't want any part of it. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> um, one interesting thing about the conscription from my from my understanding is that yes there are obviously people coming in from the classic Ru- russian population centers you know moscow st petersburg but a lot of the conscription that's going on right now is in some of the further flung russian provinces which are not quite as under moscow's control as um the the west of russia and this is important because you know this is coming from areas like chechnya where there was an ethnic rebellion at one point to try to secede from the russian federation so you know, on the one hand, there's kind of this dynamic of a weakened Russia might be fertile ground um, for 
uh, territory or not territories, um, provinces of the Russian state to try to mount a breakaway again. But at the same time, they are the ones, from my understanding, again, um, being more heavily bled dry by this conscription. So there's this really, I, I don't really have anything much to say to that, but there's this really interesting push and pull of these kind of two counterbalancing dynamics. Um, and, you know, and last thing, and I'll let you guys get back in, but like, you know, I don't think it's surprising to hear that like one of the talked about consequences of a like Russian defeat in Ukraine could be a collapse of the Russian Federation because again it is it is made up of these constituent um, provinces states whatever and um, yeah so, so, so I'll, I'll you're right a lot of these uh, all that uh, introduction sort of autonomous republics in Russia have their own language they have their own culture they have some of their own systems of governance Chechnya being a prime example um, I guess just to really highlight like the fiefdom-like character that is modern-day Russia, like Ramzan Kadyrov, who is like the the total bro in control of Chechnya. He's a complete meathead. He's really only there because he's brutal enough and dumb enough to not be a threat to Putin and to enforce order in this area that at one point in time fought a very savage war to break away from Russia, right? Um, Chechnya, and interestingly, Kadyrov um, himself said he was not going to participate in the partial mobilization because they had already provided enough manpower and then some of the most significant protests that we've seen against it have occurred in Dagestan which borders Chechnya um, another like Muslim area that doesn't feel itself particularly Russian um, I think some people are maybe reading uh, Andrew and I have a slightly different opinion on this I suspect but I think some people read a bit too deeply into the motivations of the Kremlin to conscript people from these ethnic minority areas. Like there was this thought that like, maybe this is their chance to purge these non-Russian areas finally. And like, just conveniently knock out two birds with one stone. Um, the actual law, again, in theory, there's a difference between what the law says in theory and what's actually happening on the ground. But in theory, it's supposed to only affect people who have prior military service. And the Russians have always pulled more manpower from those areas that are more economically disadvantaged because of course they do. Uh, and that would include all those ethnic areas. And so most of those people have served in the military at some point, whereas like St. Petersburg and Moscow, the, the young men there have different things to do with their lives. Two points on that. Um, we've also seen classic uh, Kremlin incompetence just in conscription. Uh, they're right. Like Mike said, they're supposed to only call up uh, military age men with prior military experience. And we hear, dozens and even hundreds of cases where that it doesn't happen like it professionals former professional soccer players getting called up older guys in their 50s just because if you look at russian demographics there aren't a ton of 20 to 29 year olds kind of in a that you'd see in a normal population chart and on the drawing conscripts from ethnic minorities two points on that uh number one that i think it's also instructive that uh, conscription is being delegated to the regional governors of these places because Putin doesn't want to be directly tied to the the you know outrage if if you know lots of people are conscripted and you know these areas that are poor ethnic minorities have higher quotas than other regions which are more populous. There are people you know I'm sure number to number people in uh, Saint Petersburg Oblast have uh, you know greater military experience than people in Chukotka in the, in the very far east. And still we're seeing these discrepancies. The other thing that I only saw just recently is that Russia is uh, trying to trick dual citizens of, you know, Central Asia or Russia migrants into conscripting for uh, the Russian military. And they're specifically targeting uh, these kinds of migrants because they're vulnerable. We could continue to talk about mobilization for a while, but I feel like yeah. um, let's let's decide on what like the next most important things to cover before we close this out, Dar, and then we are happy to dive into that. This is already becoming quite expansive and could potentially become another part two. Um, but uh, actually, I'm going to take moderator's perspective and override that because I think we should actually discuss the annexation, the official annexations of the Ukrainian territories, because that bleeds into nukes later on. So, Andrew, I'm actually going to throw this to you. Can you kind of, and I'm sure listeners may have heard. But just kind of set the groundwork. What actually happened? What are these annexations? Why is it significant? So we'd heard rumblings for weeks that, you know, uh, Russians were going to try to officially annex the areas of southern and eastern Ukraine that they had, you know, de facto held for kind of since uh, late February, early March. And this came true. We saw a few weeks ago, actually, this was last week at the time of recording, um, a big 
show in the Kremlin where Putin invited the uh, occupying leaders of four Ukrainian territories, provinces, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson oblasts, to basically come to the Kremlin and say, uh, Putin basically bestow on them, you rule these new Russian regions. And the irony here is that uh, Russia does not control all of these territories. They don't control the whole oblast of any of these. And the day after this happened, we saw Ukrainians take the town of Lyman in Donetsk oblast. And is that, you know, which yeah, the day before had been Russian territory and is now claimed back for Ukraine. So, and even uh, the Kremlin press secretary Peskov has said, we don't know where our borders are anymore. <laughs> We're so still deciding what the all final sorts borders of will be is the official line. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so before we even get into that, one thing um, we'll gloss over that's really important to mention is the actual character of these quote-unquote referendums and how the votes were tallied and yeah, counted and thank collected you. and everything. So like that. there were these yeah. yeah. uh, quote-unquote referenda in each of the four Russian-occupied territories of Ukraine and what was it, like 90, some high 90-something the lo- percent? The lowest yeah, was 97% in, in Harrison. Yeah, voted, voted to be part of Russia. Um yeah, outdone only by North Korea in terms of... Uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, and we saw videos of people coming, Russian soldiers coming to people's houses, giving them voter slips, you know, gun in hand, and basically being like, this is... Yeah, but this wasn't a vote. This was people... This was, these were house calls with men with guns and a piece of paper that says, who do you choose, um, with a given precedent that those who vote for Ukraine end up in a ditch somewhere. As we saw, as, we, as we've seen all over the country, yeah, exactly, yeah, which which has happened, which has happened, yeah. So that that's what ended up happening, and you know, since um, since before we recorded, uh, Russia's you know officially claimed these territories, which I think the most important element of this is the fact that officially the Kremlin now considers, uh, these parts of Ukraine as part of Russia. And this kind of bleeds us into our final topic, which is nuclear saber rattling, because uh, Putin has made the claim that he will defend every inch of sovereign Russian territory, of which now Ukraine he considers part of. So this kind of, um, you know, these bleed together insofar as like, if this is Russian territory, then the obvious implication is that he will use nuclear deterrence to ensure his quote unquote territorial integrity. Um, So, you know, and we mentioned this in the episode, there's always kind of been this background radiation, pun intended, of, um, you know, nuclear threats by the Kremlin. But given the rep- given these referendums and the implications of them, that has kicked it up into very high gear. Um, and just as a last, last word, you know, uh, the president of our United States, Joseph Robinette Biden III, you know, made a remark uh, very recently that, you know, he believed the threat of nuclear war was at its highest since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Is there a question at the end of this or? Oh, I mean, let's just um, talk about uh, nuclear saber rattling and, you know, kind of how we see this going. If this is going, you know, a question I want to address is um, if we see this shaking uh, what has been really exemplary Western resolve up until this point and, you know, kind of how now now that um, the the referendums have happened and Ukraine is continuing to make advances in these territories, where do we see this going um, from here? Well, I think that's actually slightly separate from the nuclear question. Um, I'll summarize my thoughts on the nukes really briefly. Um, I think it's possible. I think it's very unlikely still, um, though maybe more likely than it was when we started. Uh, this is not unusual saber-rattling saber for Russia. They've been doing this even before the war came out. They love to highlight their nuclear pieces because it's the only area in which they can uh, claim to be on any sort of parity with the United States. And it's it's an open question whether or not their nukes even work yep. or their delivery systems at that point. Like, their submarines have sunk spontaneously. Their aircraft carriers catch on fire. We don't know if they've actually maintained their nuclear arsenal uh, to the degree that they maintain the rest of their armed forces, which was, which is, as we can see, not very well, not to a high standard. Um, but beyond that, like the political implications of Russia dropping even a yo- low-yield nuclear weapon anywhere in Ukraine crosses a Rubicon that we just have not crossed since we had the privilege of doing it the first and the only time in, in World War II. Um, USA, USA. Um, I, USA, I, I strongly suspect USA. that that would run them out of friends very quickly. Um, as we discussed on earlier episodes, no one truly wants to be political friends with Russia. They do so because it's tr- purely transactional, if not coerced. 
Uh, and I don't think you'd see a very friendly China. I don't think you'd see a very friendly India any longer if Russia were to do this, and Russia needs that support. And the U.S. is talking to China and India about how are you guys going to respond? Here's here's how let's have a coordinated response uh, on if if Russia does do does use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Just to add on to Michael, I, I do think it's unlikely. This is a classic Putin threat, and he. Uh, this is kind of all he's got left uh, in, in some senses, nuclear, these kind of nuclear threats. The one caveat I would say is this war has spun out of control for Putin himself, and it's now become existential for him. And if, right, if, if Russia loses in Ukraine, is forced to draw back, I don't, I think it's the chances of Putin not being the leader of Russia go way, way up. So in that sense, uh, Winning in Ukraine is existential for Putin himself as a leader. And given that, uh, we could see th that that's kind of the one scenario where I could see a nuclear weapon being used is if Russia really, really starts to lose. Yeah, so I, I sort of see this situation actually a little bit as a Gordian knot because on the one hand, um, General H.R. McMaster, former uh, security national security advisor described Putin's use of nuclear weapons as a suicide weapon. That you know, if he were to actually deploy them, even states like China, India would probably, you know, form a coalitional alliance to remove this man because this is the one seal that the world understands cannot be broken: the use of nuclear weapons. We did it once, and um, you know, never again. Hopefully, but at the same time, um, <clears throat> you know, his loss in Ukraine is. A, would be, as Sandra said, would be deposing him from power, and that probably ends up with him in an alley blindfolded and a bullet in the back of his head. So it seems to me, you know, and this is, this kind of turns to the question of off-ramps, which has been discussed a lot, but where, and let's turn it to you guys actually, but how do we, kind of, what, what is maybe the best case for this ending um, badly? Because it, it, it seems to me that Russia under Putin is being well, really Putin is being boxed into this where this situation where based on how the war has gone at its conclusion one way or another he is going he might be he might end up dead and given those um given that those constraints you know it seems not impossible that he might decide to go out with a bang pun intended to put it bluntly, I think by the point that Putin feels like he's in that position, it's already too late for him to actually rely on the Russian military to carry out the order. I think he will have hollowed out his support to the point that um, you know, there's actually several steps uh, separated from Putin that have to sign off on allowing a nuclear weapon to be used in the Russian command structure. I, I assume they're let's just assume that they're going to adhere to it, right? There's like three other people that have to say yes, um, and I'm not at all convinced that you know, the rest of the Russian world wants to go down with him in that kind of an event. Um, we don't know what has been going on um, on the back channels between the Americans and the Russians. Um, Blinken and a few other people have said outright that they've made abundantly and explicitly clear what we will do in the event of any kind of nuclear strike. I assume those are catastrophic consequences. Can't say what they are. Um, but I wanted to point that out. Um, so you asked, like, where do you think like, where do you think this is going? Where, like, how do we think this is going to end? Like, what's Russia's way out? Is like, what exactly? Right. Well, well, well not not predicting how the war is going to end because that's an open question. But kind of given those constraints, where um, a loss, a military loss, might be the end of Putin, and a nuclear and him using nukes might be the end of Putin. Either way, like from there, sort of, how do you navigate the end of this war successfully? To not not talk about the battlefield dimensions, but the um, meta political dimensions, for lack of a better word, or something. Or is that too heady as of a question? It's just a really difficult question. I I think because I think it's difficult because nobody wants to acknowledge that there's just no happy route out of this. Um, like I don't think, uh, like Olaf Scholz very recently commented that there can't be any true peace in Europe without Russia's involvement. Um, to which like the Finnish prime minister was like, Russia's off ramp is leaving Ukraine. Period. That's it. Um, and I. I think, I think the Finns, frankly, are seeing this a lot more clearly than Schultz or the Germans have this entire time. Like, we've crossed this Rubicon. Uh, the Ukrainians and the Russians are not going to be friends again for a very, very long time, if ever. Uh, Russia has created itself to be a pariah at least as long as Putin is in control. Um, what comes after Putin? That is way too much of a Pandora's box for me to try and open right now. 
Um, I don't see a way for Russia to maintain its gains currently. Um, we didn't even really touch on the strategic picture of what Kherson looks like, but uh, spoiler alert, it's going to be a disaster for the Russians. I don't see any possible way for them to hold on to Kherson. Um, and Crimea is even under threat. And to the point of like uh, Putin saying that we're going to retaliate with all available weapons if Russia proper is threatened, Ukraine has done been hitting Crimea, man. Like they've been hitting places in Russia proper. They have, you know, taken Laman and then the excuse was, oh, well, we didn't actually decide on the final borders, even though at the beginning of the war, they acknowledged the entire territorial claims of that exact area. So they're, they're just lying at this point. Um, yeah, no. So I was going to say, given the existential nature that this last couple minutes have taken, I think it's high time that we close out on a um, note of crushing morosity. So with that, Andrew, last word before we wrap We talked up. about European security and Ukrainian security. Uh, those will only ever truly be in hand until Russia is weakened to the point that it can't threaten credibly uh, military aggression in any way. Weakness is provocative, not strength. So with that, we wanted to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the most recent episode of the Ukrainian Provcast. We do have a mailbag, so please email us any questions or hate mail that you have at uh, theukrainianprovcast at gmail.com. And we're aiming to hopefully do a mailbag uh, episode at some point where we answer all you guys' questions. Um, so on behalf of Mike, Andrew, and myself, we will be back again with another episode soon. But in the meantime, keep up the fight. Ukrainian Provcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Audio production by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach.